I'm Kobe Greer. Welcome to the Brazilians podcast. 100 Families WA is a collective action research project with a vision to address the issue of entrenched disadvantage or hardship as experienced by families living in Western Australia. Today I have the pleasure of chatting to Alex Hughes and Damien Watt. Welcome guys. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> Alex Hughes has been the manager of 100 Families WA project for the last three and a half years, looking to better understand the experiences of families living in entrenched disadvantage. Alex holds a professional background in child protection, family support, sector development and managing community-focused research projects. He holds an undergraduate degree in psychology and a master's in public health. Damien is a Noongar man who has lived rough in Perth for the past eight years. Although he has worked consistently throughout this time being homeless, he knows exactly what living in disadvantage looks like and feels like. Life has changed a lot for Damien, though, in the past 18 months, thanks to more stable accommodation and an introduction to art. So, welcome, guys. And to start this conversation, uh, what are the compacting factors that contribute to disadvantage? Uh, Thanks, Chloe. Shall I briefly explain what 100 Families is oh, before please. I launch into that? Answer? Yes, let's do that. So 100 Families WA is a, a, originally it started as a research project, so an understanding of what families experiencing entrenched disadvantage, so disadvantage, but those who are stuck in the system. Essentially, it was born out of the, uh, the knowledge that the system, the, the sector, the community services sector and government are not doing uh, necessarily what needs to be done to help those families because they stay stuck. They're maintaining their situations rather than climbing the ladder. So the project was born um, and 10 partners came together, about seven community service organisations, uh, two schools at UWA and, and WACOS, which is the WA Council of Social Service, to really engage families who are in those situations and, and learn from, through, their, uh, through their experiences. So actually there's 400 families involved, even though we're called 100 families. Um, didn't change the name, but that's, that's okay. Um, and the way we engage families and collected data uh, is, is two ways. One is a longitudinal survey, so over a period of years, um, and the other was a um, interview, so one-on-one -on -one interviews every two weeks for a whole year. And that's, for, that's the 100 families, so 100 families took part in those really in-depth um, conversations. And that's how we got to this point where we have this rich source of data. Um, and the idea is then to learn from them about what works, what doesn't work, what keeps them trapped, what we could do better, mm -hmm. and then use that information to, to change the system. And that includes the internal partnerships, wanting to know what to do, um, as well as us advocating wider to state, federal government, the wider sector, mm -hmm. and to community, because community members in general play a part in this. So that was the, where the project was born from, and that was three years ago, and the first three years was, was that. Um, and, you, and to answer your, your question, so some of the, the findings, and, and I guess what we need to preface is people experiencing entrenched disadvantage, their stories are very wide, very diverse. Everything from 
people experiencing homelessness, which is around 52% of, you know, have experienced some time in their life, all the way through to um, family domestic violence survivors, um, who are often single mums, you know, trying to get ahead, to grandparents who are now raising their grandkids for, for different reasons and having to use their super or sell their house and, and finding themselves in this situation they didn't expect. So it's very diverse. Mm, absolutely. Um, but some of the common findings, as I said, 52% have experienced homelessness. Um, almost a quarter have um, been in out-of-home care, so in the child protection system. Um, almost half, 42% ran away from home prior to being um, 18 years old. 12% in juvenile detention. A huge 78% experienced family domestic violence at some point. Wow. Either as a, a victim or a witness or as a perpetrator. Um, so these are what we call adverse life experiences. So these really traumatic experiences that happened either in adulthood or in childhood, which is the adverse childhood experiences. So that's their start. And if we can imagine a spiral, often the spiral as it gets further and further down, it starts at that widest point in childhood when their foundation is kind of set through these traumatic experiences. And then you can imagine the struggle that goes from there. Um, so in, in, in day-to-day -day life, what we've what we've found through the through the project is um, no shocker. People are struggling. Forty-two percent are living in community housing. Mm. Uh, I think seventeen percent were currently homeless at that point. Um, most eighty-five percent don't have any savings in the bank, so less than five hundred dollars. Um, over half don't have a car. Um, 82% uh, have chronic health conditions mm -hmm. and 76 have a mental health condition. So not only are you coming from that base of struggle, of trauma, but your day-to-day -day life is impacted to the point where, you know, everything becomes hard. And that's that entrenchment. So that's the kind of context of where, where we're talking and what families, um, yeah, are experiencing. This whole project is just incredibly valuable to understand, like, you know, not only on the, the local level, but even on that political level, like, where the response, where responsibility is. Yeah. You know, I think of the intersectionality, just whether it be, you know, all those social issues around gender, around race, around all of these intersecting can create this disadvantage as well as um, discrimination. Yeah. 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 So you've mentioned some of the impacts, mm. but on a daily, uh, on a on a local and individual family level, mm. um, some of the impacts that this has on on disadvantage um, people. Mm. Yeah. So, um, like you you mentioned a second ago, it it's it's complex because yeah. of the way the um, intersectionality, but at the same time. It can be simple, like we overcomplicate it sometimes. Mm. And, um, you know, what we found is often families have the answers to their, to their problems, or at least they have a good idea and a good understanding. It's just sometimes we're not listening. Mm. So in terms of the personal experience, I mean, as I, as I said a second ago, families are experiencing um, a lot of abuse and neglect, and it's prevalent, mm. really, really prevalent. In fact, it was kind of there in every case, whether it be intergenerational or something happened later on and it triggered, you know, this, it, this disadvantage. Um, 
families talked about love and belonging being critical, but being strained, because you can imagine all the pressures that they're going through. Um, from a societal point of view, families talked about feeling othered. I, I guess I should say, when I say families, for the listeners, family is def defined by the person. So it doesn't have to be your 2.4, like you don't have to be mum, dad, couple of kids. Family could be you and your dog on the street. That's your family. It could be your street family. It could be your housemates. Whatever you think of as family is, is family. So when I say that word, have that in mind. Um, but they, essentially they feel othered from mainstream society in many cases. Because um, you can imagine, you know, the stigma and discrimination. Um, and those narratives, whether they be the public narrative or the political narrative, often there's a lot of political narratives that are, you know doll bludgers and leaners, not lifters, they know, they're very aware of those, you know, and, and it hurts. Absolutely. They, they talked about that a lot. Um, the social connection is, is really critical because often it's that kind of emotional support but also helping each other out. But sometimes that's strained and often people find themselves being socially isolated because either, you know you can't afford to go and catch up for that coffee or to catch that bus to that place or you withdraw because of whatever you're going through. So there's a lot of social isolation. Um, from, the, from the system point of view, a key one, and we'll talk about this in a minute when we go through the overall kind of five key findings, yeah. um, is the income support is insufficient. So when you talk about job seeker, as I just kind of hopefully illustrated from a family point of view, many do want a job, many do want to work, and many do actually, I forget, I think it was 17% that were currently employed, but employed as the working poor, still in a disadvantage. And Damon, you, I know you, you can talk about that in a minute. Um, but the income support is insufficient. Essentially, all these people are living in poverty, even if they're on income benefit. So if you're hoping to climb a ladder, you're still chasing your tail, trying to put food on the table, deciding whether to catch that bus to that job interview or, you know, your job seeker provider or go and get your medication. You know, the, there's one or the other decisions every day and that consumes people. And often people are in debt as well because of either they got left with debt from a domestic violence situation or they've had to get in debt to try and put food on the table. And so when you throw the other expectation, especially from a punitive kind of approach from government to say, you need to go and get a job, but there's no consideration of their needs and their resourcing to help with all those things is insufficient. You're really, uh, you're not helping anybody. Um, a key thing, and this was part of the partnership um, approach, but also for the sector, is the services aren't always working to meet families' needs. Um, and that's because we have access issues, whether it be navigation issues, as in, you know, the geographical location of a, of a service, the hours they operate, or the criteria that you fall in or don't fall in. Um, everyone feels a, not everyone feels a statistic. Yeah, yeah. that's it. And, and, yeah. and although obviously agencies come at it from a humane, you know, helping point of view, sometimes the commissioning process that goes behind it makes it so they can't accept people who are sitting outside of their criteria or... Yeah or offer a service that's flexible that goes to a certain point because they're constrained. Mm. Um, the systems are not connected often. So, you, you know, you might go to place A 
and they don't do what you need it to do. So you have to go to place B and place C and you're chasing and at the same time burning your resources and affecting your mental health. Sometimes there's a cost issue. These are the kind of issues, you know, that sit under that umbrella. Mm. Um, and a key one, which maybe we'll move on to in a second, is the system and the services aren't always designed from a lived experience point of view. So if you're designing a service or a support, the best people to work with to help you, to help guide that, is those who are impacted by it. Mm. And that's not always happening. That includes policies as well as um, practice. So it's coming from top down, not from yeah, yeah not from yeah, not hearing the um, the voices of the people being affected, mm. Mm. which is a done to, not done with yes. approach. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I th and that's what I love about um, hundred families is that even though you're working with these ten organisations, it's also working with people who are being impacted mm. by disadvantage. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what can be done um, to better support families uh, living, living in hardship? Well, maybe I'll, I'll just outline quickly the key five. Um, mm. And then I know, Damien, I mean, you've got the lived experience of this, so maybe you could add some colour by explaining, you know, what you, yeah. what you what you went through and what helped and what didn't help for you. Yeah, for sure. So the, so the top five um, key categories of findings, and there's lots of sub-findings, but I don't know if we have time to go into those. First one is livable income. If we get that right, then a lot of the other stuff fades away, you know. People don't need to access services if they've got a livable income to do it themselves. And that's what families want, you know. They, they want enough support so they can do it themselves. So livable income. The second one is hear my voice. So and that's from an individual point of view. So helping to set the goals that you want um, and have your voice heard in that, um, that plan um, and not being dictated to in terms of, well, we can't do that because of the criteria or we can't provide you this support because it ends after month four, something like that. The other side of hear my voice is the collective. So the kind of... Um, policy and service design approach. So there's a lot of talk now about community advisory groups, um, you know, get involving people with lived experience, but that needs to be done more and better. Um, so that's another advocacy point. Third finding is better access. So helping people to access the service, um, because at the moment there's so many things that really are, act as barriers um, and we need to get that right. Fourth is invest in relationships and quality support. So families, when they talked about accessing a service, they didn't list the name of the organisation. They listed Kobe or Alex or Jane or, you know, the name. That's what mattered. And it's the relationship they build. And if that's not done right, then the whole thing won't work. And that starts at, at you know, the person at the reception. Yeah. So everybody needs to be thinking about how they can invest in the relationship. Mm. Well, it's about trust, isn't it? Safety and trust, yeah. <laughs> and safety. Yeah, you don't want to keep repeating your trauma over and over every time to the next person, the next person. You can go through ten people in a year sometimes with the way jobs and positions change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And constantly having to repeat the story yeah, or whatever. You, if you haven't had the training or, or the counselling yet, then you're just constantly re-traumatising re yourself. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the final big, um, big finding category is challenge, stigma and discrimination. So there's still 
in our system and in our community a lot of stigma and discrimination. And that's a big part of this project. I mean, you know, we try and make sure or try and promote awareness of what people with lived experiences are going through. There's a lot of misconceptions um, and people still feel the, the stigma and, and discrimination. And that's even from a service point of view. Um, yeah, so those are the big five. And, um, and they are big fives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you any comment around that, yeah, well, Damien? Well, like, with having my voice heard, I, um, I'd been sleeping rough for probably about eight years, um, building sites, just um, wherever I was working the day. I'd work, uh, do my work during the day. The, the boss would uh, give us a lift to maybe the nearest bottle shop or a shop to get dinner and that, and I'd head back to the building site. Um, I didn't want to be in hostels because uh, I had my own... Uh, stigmas and discriminations about hostels, thinking they were just full of um, people with my own problems or other drug addicts and people that you, if you're trying to lift your life up, you don't really want to be associate, associating with the same people with the same problems as you. You need to, you feel like you need to be in that, in that crowd that you want to get to already, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I'd had enough of trying to fix it all myself. I realised I couldn't fix it myself, so I went to one of the um, partner agencies with 100 families, um, not knowing of 100 families at the time, but uh, just spoke to a caseworker there that I'd, I'd, had, I'd built a relationship with before, um, told him what I wanted, told him what my addictions and needs were, just being bluntly honest about everything going on in my life mm -hmm. and what I wanted to achieve in my life. I, I told him I wanted to get stable housing, I wanted to start my art career, I wanted to do something with my life. Mm -hmm. um, within, eight, within a week he had me in um, a housing program I stuffed up there, but I was honest about my stuff up, so they moved me into another program. Uh, it was part of the um, no wrong door policy, which means, like, if you don't work here, then it might work for you somewhere else. Yeah. So it's just about finding the right place for the person to go, not about just putting them in one place, and that doesn't work, OK, see you later, go along, we can't help you. Yeah. It's, there has to be... Everyone's got a different story and different problems, so there has to be different solutions for these. You can't just have one fixed solution. Yeah. Um, they, um, they got me this transitional housing. Um, they'd seen my drawings and that. They asked me if I'd like to do some painting. I said I'd love to. They gave me a box of paint and life just hasn't stopped changing since. It's just, yeah, anger's gone away. I've spent most of my days painting. Wow. I used to work while I was homeless. So I don't bother with that anymore. I just work on myself now and my, my art career. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> can, can I ask, Damien, what was, what was it... Um, what was happening for you when, at that point, when you did reach out to that service, when you thought, no, I've had enough, um, I'm wanting more? Was there something going on in your life at that time that you thought, we're, I want to reach out? We were building a 33-storey, um, 33-bedroom, 30, three-storey house on Jutland Parade in Dalkeith. And I decided I've had enough of building houses for the super rich and it's time to start building, setting up my own footing in my life. Oh, wow. Beautiful. And it was, because we've, we've, we've talked a bit, um, and, and that, what you just said, Damien, is a perfect scenario <coughs> that shows um, not only there was a change in you, but when you were ready, there was a relationship there with mm. um, that, that worker that you knew who came and talked to you and you confided in and you had trust enough to be honest. And then he and others help you. Well, you they listened and you yeah. were able to set your goals and they helped you deliver. Helped me to help myself. Yeah, mm. so it was, it was a mutual thing. Um, but at any point, if those things hadn't happened, 
I mean, you, what, if, what I, if I hadn't have been as honest as I was with them, I don't think I would have had as great results as I've had. Do you know what I mean? You can't you can't expect people to help you if you're not being honest about your problems and fully honest about your problems. If you want help, yeah, you have to be open and honest. Yeah, yeah. And and, and that's about a, building a relationship, building a relationship regardless trust, yes. of who you know, whether it's an intimate relationship, a working relationship. It is about. Honest and trust and, and safety, isn't it? Well, if I'd gone to the day centre that day and I hadn't seen the worker that I already knew, like some that I already had a strong relationship with, then I probably would still be now in that same position. I was at, probably still working for the boss and just living that life of hand in mouth, hand in mouth every day. Yeah, yeah. And, and another... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, on the, on the flip side of that, because we were talking earlier, you've had a relationship with somebody that you didn't have trust with... Yeah. And then the other, th the, the flip of that happened where you felt you couldn't confide. And I'm sorry if I'm putting words in your mouth. But that's, it just illustrates the importance yeah. of being able to have a real and authentic and, and genuine connection with somebody that you yeah. feel you can... I had this first caseworker and um, we just, I told her a bit about my childhood and my life and where I'm at now and my kids and all that. And she made a comment which really sort of like set me off on the wrong tangent. So I was able to build that trust relationship with her. And then I had an incident at the house and I wasn't all that honest about the incident with the two workers that were asking about it. One of them was the worker that I really had to trust with. But then when I sent him a few days later out in the street, I was able to go up to him and be honest with him, tell him what actually happened and why it had happened. And the next thing I know, they've changed my worker to someone that I could actually work with. Fantastic. So sort of, yeah, just being open and honest. And, yeah. And having, but also having the, the, the those people that I was being open and honest to, having the available resources and the workers to be able to work with me as well, because mm -hmm. like, I'm one of thousands. Yeah. And, and something else that you also said, Damien, that I thought was really important is, um, you know, we, we, we don't fit in, you know, everybody isn't uniform and have the same needs and the same wants and one place didn't work out for you. And, um, and so, as you said, there's not always just one solution for everyone. And so you tried another place which was better suited for you. And, but I really, that, I, it said, that, that just really rings um, important to me in that, yeah, you are an individual. And of course, um, um, all solutions, it's not a homogenous sort of mm. um, solution for all, you know. Right. And, um, and yeah, I'm pleased that um, there was that opportunity for you to have connected with someone who could see you, who listened to you, mm. and um, gosh, for where you are now, mm. yeah. And the importance of it not being dictated to, so in mm. Damien's case, he got to say, like, this is what I really want. Mm. And it wasn't just housing, it was also the art focus. Oh, because, yeah. you know, that, that that kind of need might be overlooked as a, I don't know, superfluous thing, when in fact that was... In your... That was the biggest thing for me because I, I suffered with uh, PTSD from the age of five. It was misdiagnosed as ADD, so all my life I'd been placed on tablets and drugs and stuff like that, when all I really needed was to be given a paintbrush when I was a kid. I could have painted it all out, art therapy, like, that's what I do now every day is basically art therapy for me. I turn all the darkness inside into beauty in the canvas. Yeah, yeah. And that's... And, and, and there's so many stories where um, children who have... who are traumatised 
how it's just misdiagnosed yeah. as naughty kids or yeah. ADHD when actually it's all... Yeah, well, Damien, yeah. And it, like, I got smacked and all that as a kid. That didn't stop me going to jail, you know what I mean? Like, mm. I still ended up in jail. I still did all the bad things that they were trying to stop me doing, but at the same time telling me, you gave me bad all your life. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. like, they do. There was trauma there because it, it, it involved, like, other family members that were also traumatised as well. So, like, just not mum and dad's fault either. They really, like, this is back in the 80s and this stuff just wasn't really known and there's also a lot of shame for parents around these sort of things as well, I guess. And, yeah. and a lot of this can be intergenerational. Yeah. And it sounds as though you're stopping the cycle. I'm you trying my best the to. cycle, yeah. 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 Which is amazing. <laughs> i got goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> so what I've been hearing, you know, pretty loud and clear, um, Damien and... Alex is um, the resiliency of a lot of these families that you've been working with. And um, so if you can tell me more about, you know, what, what does work. You have mentioned a few things, um, but is there anything more that you'd like to add to that at all? Yeah, I think from, like, accessing services, like for myself, from my mental health plan, I... Um, I have a lot of anger, anger issues still, which painting doesn't always solve. Mostly it's just concentrated on my phone these days. Um, not very computer savvy or phone savvy. So I tend to um, take a bit out on my phone. So when I was accessing the mental health plan for myself to try and sort out all my PTSD issues and other issues that I have, I experienced a lot of workplace bullying while I was working when I was homeless as well. So it's sort of like affected me with being able to work now. So I was trying to figure all that out because I'm proud of being a worker. I've worked ever since I was 14, you know, but I'm... Um, unable to do it now because of the bullying. Um, it's getting called all sorts of things and there's racism involved and lots, lots, lots of stuff that just should have been left in the 80s where, where it was. But um, I think that if, uh, like, with psychologists, if, if you're on a mental health plan and you're on the queue, then you finally get your first initial appointment. It's generally over the phone, especially with COVID at the moment. Everything's done over the phone. So you get your initial interview, everything's going well, then you break your phone. They ring up for their second appointment, you haven't got a phone... They can't get hold of you, you go back to the back of the queue. And that's a very, very long queue because there's a lot of people out there looking for mental health plans and stuff at the moment. If they could engage with the services like the day centres and stuff in Perth where a lot of us homeless people go or Aboriginal people go, they could organise for if they can't ring you on that phone, then you, you might, if, the, if, this, if your mental health plan means enough to you, then you would get yourself to that day centre and accept a phone call from them there and still be able to continue on with your mental health and hopefully get yourself to a better place. Oh, fabulous idea. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's, that's a great example. Um, I mean, in terms of the families, I think it was 7% didn't have access or didn't have a mobile phone, and nearly 40% or 40% didn't have the internet. So we need to be thinking, you know, in terms of um, digital inequality, what we can do more innovatively to help people maintain the supports that they need. If you just offer something through one channel and that channel doesn't even, is not possible because they don't own a phone or don't have the internet or, or don't have transport, whatever it is, you're already putting them at a, a huge disadvantage. Um, so we need to think more creatively. Yes. You, you mentioned about resilience. I think families are resilient, of course, but it's forced resilience. They have no choice. Yes, um, yes. People don't want to be resilient. Yes. They want to thrive and I guess the system we're offering for those people stuck is survival when they when they want what they want is transformation so the five key um, findings 
categories of findings I gave you, we have 10 calls to action under those, um, which you can find on our website. Shall I give a plug? I, Please, yeah. plug away. So, <laughs> www.100familieswa.org.au. So you can Google us. And there's a resources page, and on there you'll find, I mean, there's a huge report, but there's a summary, summary report, and that offers ways forward, which is the calls to action underneath those categories. And that's for government, that's for the sector, and that's for community as well. Um, and we want to, I mean, I think you might ask us this in a minute, what we're going to do next, but we're trying to promote those as much as possible. And look, to be honest, a lot of it isn't... Um, rocket science and it's not necessarily mind-bending stuff but it's come from the families it comes from the voices of the people and so it's our obligation and responsibility to hear those voices um and so it's you know in terms of 100 families people like me and, and damien and there's you know there's others are going out and trying to promote these as much as possible mm -hmm. um because we need to make a change it really isn't good enough um for one in ten families in Western Australia to be in poverty mm. and one in five children to be That's in poverty. Astounding. Um, yeah, and we, you know, we talk about this united approach to a pandemic mm. because, you know, it matters. We want to make it better. Well, this also matters, and we should all be thinking of, you know, about how we can make this better together rather than just individuals within the sector and mm. government. A lot of us look, look adversity in the black eye we give it the other way, but we're getting fed up and fighting with adversity. Mm. Sure, it's a non-stop struggle. Yeah. With listeners who would like to support somehow mm. or, um, I don't know, get involved, I, I don't know mm. if there's... Is there room for any of that? Like, if, if listeners are wanting to um, get in touch or support... Yeah, yeah we welcome people to do? get in touch. Um, the best two, well, the two things they can do, we have a newsletter that comes out every quarter. Mm -hmm. So on the website, um, which I mentioned, just Google 100 Families WA, you can sign up for, and there's some um, information and tips in there of what you can do. We also have a Facebook page under the same name. You can go and follow. We'd really encourage you to do that. One of the biggest things that people can do, and it's an easy thing, is to sign up to the Raise the Rate campaign. So this is a campaign, it's a, a national campaign, to raise the level of income for people on benefits. Now, I don't know if people know this, but Australia is one of the worst in the OECD, which is, you know, the Western um, countries, for providing income benefit. So we're well below poverty level. So if you can imagine mum and two kids, you know, struggling and living off of underneath poverty level, trying to get food on the table, having to visit food banks, and then there's an obligation for her to try and get a job on top of that. And rent. And pay rent, <laughs> and get medication, and get transport, and, you know, even provide a nice experience for the children, take them out once in a while. It's just not possible. So the best thing we can do is to raise the rate. So you can Google raise the rate, and you can sign up to that campaign and encourage federal government to raise the income level to... Um, to a fair, fair and equitable yeah. level. Um, and that would mitigate a lot of the other problems because families can then do it for themselves. It won't take all the problems away, but it will do a large helping hand. A large helping hand. Um, 
So I really advocate for people to oh, go and fantastic. do that. Fantastic! I I hadn't heard of that actually, so mm. I'm on to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Raise the rate. Mm. Is there anything else? And because I can imagine that education would be, uh, you know, um, so, do you recommend you know particularly around, you know, intersectionality issues as well? You know, sort mm. of like, um, is there anything around there that you can suggest? If if we're talking general public mm. um, I mean go onto our website there's videos that they can watch so we oh. have a, a speaking from experience series Brilliant. which is people with lived experience talking about several issues um, around employment education um, finances there's lots of different things so they'll learn from that excellent um, we're also doing a new series actually that will be launched probably around um, April mm. um, and so Damon, hopefully, we on that. <laughs> we'll hear him and see him there. It'd be great to see his face. Um, <laughs> and that'll be in collaboration with the, the CEOs um, of the organisations. Why would you do that to your listeners? <laughs> <laughs> Hair and makeup, that's, that's that was everything. Um, but in terms of general community, I mean, that stigma and discrimination one is huge. Like, we perpetuate myths about what people look, go through, experience, behaviours, and most of it is not true. Um, so I guess, the, and it sounds kind of a bit, I don't know, fluffy, but kindness, yeah. compassion. Don't judge a book by its cover. Understand people um, and, t and, and hear their voice. Like, listen, Spence, I mean, Damon, what do you want to speak on that? Oh, for me, it's mainly just like, could, could you imagine you or your, yourself or your kids being in that position? And then how, how judgy would you be then? Do you know what I mean? Like, because a lot of people are judgy on people that are in that position thinking that it's... The parents have gone out, wasted all the money, or something like that, or they just don't care, or whatever. But like for a lot of Aboriginal families, it's the intergenerational trauma. It's like they have anger at what's happened. They have anger at themselves for not standing up. Like just anger in general, and that, that mm. it can't it can't just be brushed off. It needs to be addressed and fixed. And um, you can't you can't come out of a position like that if. Everywhere you see, you see hate directed towards you or misguided hate directed towards you. Like, how, how are you meant to rise out of that? Yeah, yeah, it sounds hard. It's yeah. hard, really hard. And it's that old adage that, like, we, we do have more in common than we have differences, but mm. people don't necessarily get the chance to explore that. Mm. So some of the things we're doing going forward, um, we'll be doing a lot of workshops where we um, talk more about this and it'll be co-facilitated with um, people going through this, um, like like Damien, um, but we'll do some um, some some speeches and some presentations. So um, we're going to be doing a, a talk probably in April for this, uh, for Netherlands. So the local MP has asked us to come and talk to their um, constituents and MPs to try and keep try and bring those people together to have mm. a conversation. We're going to be holding some um, art exhibitions. Um, again, as a vehicle to help promote and uh, awareness and compassion around what people are going through, mm. um, and and see some beautiful art and, and maybe and purchase hopefully some, <laughs> some beautiful art. Um, when you mentioned compassion, there, like for me, the incident that sticks out most for me was probably about uh, five years ago. It was middle of winter. I was uh, building a house just off Canning Bridge. The owners were away on holiday. They knew that there was a homeless man working on the house that was working as a bricklayer building it, and they had no problem at all with me setting up a tent on the bottom floor and sleeping in the tent. The neighbours next door had a problem over it, though, and they knew that the owners had let me stay there and that, but once the owners had left, two days after they'd left for their holiday, 
these people are on the phone to the police complaining about the homeless man being next door, right, right, uh, the police have come out, they're talk- about the fence listening to them talk to the neighbours and the neighbours are saying, oh, the people know that he's staying there, they're all right with him staying there, but we don't want him there, we want him to go. And the police have just basically laughed in their face. It's probably one of the best um, moments I've had with the police where they've just laughed in their face and told them to buzz off and go back in their car and left. Yeah. So it's like just a bit of compassion, like the That's... bloke's trying to stay out of the rain for Pete's sakes. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. So... So, yeah, I don't know how to respond to that one, Damien. It's all right. It's all just yeah. part of life, you know. I'm really and that's an everyday them. occurrence, huh? For some people, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I had to get chased off of building sites and then have to rock back up there the next morning for work. Mm. <laughs> mm. And, and, and those responses, I feel, are misguided and based on fear because mm. they just don't know. They're ignorant yeah. and they don't have any connection to that world. Never. So that's something we can try and try and do. I felt like the, the Speaking From Experience series I mentioned earlier, the reason I did that, uh, and we did it, you know, started two years ago when the pandemic first began, mm. it, is because there was this new wave of empathy in the community about, oh, my God, people are losing their jobs and there was this, you know, job keeper, you know, being introduced and people were talking about it like, oh, so-and-so has lost their jobs, poor them. And I was like, well, actually, there's a lot of people in that boat. It just happened a lot earlier. And it could have been some trauma that kick-started it or who knows, but I was trying to capitalise on that wave of empathy. And I think through awareness, you know, you can start to create a a mind change and then a behaviour change. Mm. So maybe if those people, the next-door neighbours, had just even engaged in a conversation first, mm. then they might feel different mm. and not act out of fear. Mm. Um, so that's one of the goals. I found most of the time when I was on the street that um, if people actually did come up and talk to me and got to get a bit of an understanding of me, nine times out of ten they're trying to offer me a room in their house or this or that. Mm. But a lot of time when that happens, like, the people are then become very, um, very owning of everything you might have or... Or, or get, like, you, they've done you this huge big favour of giving you their couch or their shed to sleep in, so now you have to give them all your money and all this and all that, and, and you're also doing all the housework for them, you, <laughs> and you're holding down your own job. It's just all then you have the couples that they find out that you're working and homeless, so then they, because they feel small beside you, they kick you out and tell you to go along or they make up some reason to get rid of you, and it's just... Like, a lot of people just need to realise it could happen to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I mean... It can. It, Most it, people are too bad decisions away from it. That's, that's all it, it takes. That's yeah. it. That's it. I mean, hopefully people can imagine something in their own life where it's taken a turn, an unexpected turn. You've had to rely on a family member or some savings or, or something that you're lucky enough to have in your life. Mm. Imagine if you didn't have those. Imagine if you didn't have those family members around you or you weren't lucky enough to have savings. What would happen then? And this is what often kickstarts disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people who flow into the system sometimes are in disadvantage, but after six months they can flow out. Mm-hmm. But some people don't get that opportunity and they stay stuck. And once you're down the bottom of that spiral, the system isn't designed to help you climb it. It's not a sufficient. And that's not to criticise the sector, because the sector does an excellent job, but the system needs to change in order for those families to really 
climb the ladder. It's hard to um, climb out when you think that that's where you belong as well because you, you're given this set amount of money, that set amount of money is meant to last you so long and you can't make it last that long, so there must be something wrong with you. Mm. It's not something wrong with the money, it's something wrong with you, so then you become even more depressed and stuck down there not knowing that all you needed was a little bit more help. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, and that's definitely not true. <laughs> it's yeah. definitely the system. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but that's yeah. how you get in your, in your own headset, feel bad because you've been given this money and you still can't find your way out of the debt that you're in. Like, I'd have people asking me, but you've got a job. How do you stay homeless? Yeah. Well, I have to borrow money every day for breakfast, lunch, dinner. If I want to have a shower, that costs me 10 bucks per, per mm. rest centre. Just a, a packet of smokes or... Sometimes a bottle of alcohol to get me to sleep on the concrete at, on, a, on a cold night, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, okay, they're things that aren't priorities, obviously, but at that point of time, it was something I needed just to get me through that period. Yeah, cool, that's it. And I, I was working as well and still couldn't make the money last, you know what well, I mean? Remember, I said at the very beginning, 17% of families w are working, you know, they're part of the working poor in, in terms of often earning minimal wage, yep. very, um, the casual shift pattern could be, you know, some this week, none next week, yeah. and, and, and there's no consistency. Um, and you're living hand to mouth because it's not enough. And especially if you've got kids or others, you know, you're caring for. And um, when we asked a very open question, and, and families can answer any, any which way, what would make the biggest difference to your life? Mm. One in five said to get a job. Um, people want better. They want better for themselves, but mostly they want better for their family. But often things like, I mean, I said earlier, I think it was 85% have got um, chronic health conditions, 78% have got mental health conditions. You can't just put that goal in front of people without the necessary supports to overcome some of these hurdles. And for some families, it will never be possible. But um, just dangling the unattainable carrot without any real meaningful supports is, is you know, is not fair. Yeah. Raising awareness as well seems key on a on yeah. a societal level. Yeah, yeah. So before we um, end today's session, was there any last comment that you'd like to make, um, Damien, at all, to listeners? I think um, people just need more to open their hearts a bit more. Yeah. Um, like just open your hearts and open your minds to. How, how how things could be if that was your child there or if that was your nephew or yourself there, your brother, your sister, your mum, because there are a lot of older people on the streets too, you know what I mean? And mm. like, how how really could it be someone in their 70s fault that they're on the street, you know what I mean? Like, it, there might be some small reasons there, but most of it is through um, senior abuse or um, just trying to help out their family to the point that they have nothing left and they're too proud to, 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 to say that. They, they go without to give mm. to their family, you know, and just people need um, not look at everyone with so much negativity, mm. not mm. so much negativity, just open, open your hearts and your minds. Mm. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. If you'd <laughs> like to see my art, dottybody79 TikTok. Is it dotty, how do you, how do you spell it? D-O-T-T-Y-W-A-T-T-Y, seven nine. Seven nine? Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to sign up for 100 Families WA, <laughs> and you can find out when our art exhibition um, slash events, evenings, food, drinks, speeches, talks will be, you'll find out via Facebook um, or our newsletter. So, yeah, 100 Families WA, either the, the website or the Facebook page. 
Yes. And don't forget to raise the rate. Google that. Sign raise up. the rate. Contact your local MP. And raise the age. Yeah, yeah, that's another one. <laughs> and raise the age, yes. yes. Great. Yeah. OK. OK. It's just been an absolute pleasure having you both. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you, Rally. Thanks. <laughs>